Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is sponsored by Stamps.com and Squarespace. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Edward Aids case. Last week, I explained to you how the prosecution convinced the jury that Edward Aids was the murderer of Elnora Griffin. But what we're going to do this week is go back to the very beginning, before the trial, before the investigation. We're going to forget about who we think did it or who the prosecution thinks did it. We're not even going to consider suspects. We're going to do our own investigation. And we're going to start where investigations should start. And that's with victimology. And we're going to follow that up with an analysis of the crime scene. No prosecutor's spin. No defense attorney's spin. Just simple, basic investigatory facts. What were the risk factors of the victim? And what evidentiary value does the crime scene itself have? Now, for any of you who have not been to the truthandjusticepod.com website recently, you probably need to go check it out. Under the case documents page, there's a link to a page that is strictly covering Edward Aid's case. And what I'm going to be doing is making a section on that page every week for all of the supporting documentation and photos for that week's episode. Last week's episode 214 documents are already up. And by the time you listen to this, that page is going to be filled with crime scene photos, transcripts from sections of the trial, basically everything that was presented at trial that's relevant to the crime scene investigation. You'll notice when you're going through the episode documents that a lot of things are redacted. First and foremost, I was wrestling with the idea of showing crime scene photos that included photos of the victim. I thought about not posting them at all out of respect for the victim, but I want those of you who want to help me actively investigate this case to have the clearest picture possible of what went on that night. So what I've done is I've edited out all of the photos of the victim. I tried to trace Elnora's body out as closely as possible so you can get an idea of position without actually seeing her nude body and the gruesome injuries that are on it. Now as far as documents, there are thousands and thousands of pages of documents for this case. And to try to look at it all at once is incredibly overwhelming. I have spent the last couple of weeks up late at night and all day, every day, reading through all of these documents. And it's a lot of information. And I want to keep this process on as organized of a track as possible. That's why on that case documents page for Edward Aid's case, I'm only giving out the documents that are relevant to that episode. And that's an attempt to help keep us focused on each subject. And even with that, it's a lot of documentation. There are hundreds of pages of transcripts. But you'll notice some sections are redacted out, 
And the only reason they're redacted is because there may have been a bench conference or another witness stepped in shortly for something. And I just redacted those out to keep us focused on the issue at hand. For those of you that want to really get into this case, once we're done breaking down all of the elements, I will put up the full set of transcripts from start to finish, unedited, unredacted for the entire trial. But for now, we're focusing episode by episode, and now it's time to begin with the victimology of Elnora Griffin. The first thing that we need to do when we're looking at a case like this should be to look first at the victim. What were they doing in the days and weeks leading up to the end of their life? And are there any risk factors that can be identified? In Elnora Griffin's case, there's not a whole lot there to work with. From what her cousin told me, she was a pretty simple woman. She went to work, she would visit with the neighbors, have dinner, go to church on Sundays, and pretty much kept to herself. There were really no changes in that routine in the weeks leading up to her murder. So next we look at relationships. Elnora had a close group of friends, but a small group. She was very close with her cousin Johnny Pryor, who lived right next door, and she was also close friends with Maggie Dews, Edward H's grandmother, that lived two houses away. She had another friend who I mentioned last week, Miss Kubia Jackson. This is a friend that she had met through her cousin Johnny, and they also worked at the same place. But a further delve into Elnora Griffin's relationships starts to identify some possible risk factors. In the spring and summer of 1993, Elnora was dating a man named Leonard Mosley, and in fact, they were engaged to be married. Leonard, however, when they first started dating, had a girlfriend who lived with him named Angela Walker. Once Leonard and Elnora got serious, Miss Walker moved out of Mosley's house. She was gone for a little while, and then two weeks before Elnora was murdered, Angela Walker moved back into Leonard Mosley's house. I'll break down the details of all this when we get into the investigation episode, but according to the trial transcripts, Leonard and Elnora had broken up, sort of. And Leonard had described his relationship with Angela when she moved back in as a friends-type relationship, sort of. They both testified that they were intimate on occasion after she had moved back in. Now, when she had moved back in, Leonard and Elnora were supposedly broken up. However, Leonard also testified that he was still stopping by to see Elnora on occasions and said that he was also still intimate with her. Now, like I said, there's a lot of details that surround this situation, but the basics for this episode is to understand that this does present a risk factor. Elnora, in at least some respects, was involved in a bit of a love triangle. And there's another person that increases this risk level even a little bit more. Now, this is another Leonard, so in order to keep us from being confused, from this point forward, I'll refer to him as Francis. But there was another man by the name of Leonard Francis Johnson. Francis was doing some work for Johnny Pryor during the summer of 93. He actually dated and stayed with Edward Eight's mother for a period of time somewhere around there. And according to both Edward and Francis Johnson's testimony at trial, he was dating Elnora Griffin right around this same time. So the timelines are a little bit blurry, and we'll get into all of that later. But all around the same period of time, Elnora was dating Leonard Mosley. They got engaged. There was a breakup. There was an ex-girlfriend of his moving back in. They were still having intimate encounters. Mr. Mosley was also having intimate encounters with his ex-girlfriend. And Francis Johnson was involved with Elnora during that same period of time somewhere. So all those circumstances combined, those equal risk factors for Elnora. Now, as far as other risk factors, there really weren't any that I've been able to find. 
Elnora was not on drugs. She wasn't involved in prostitution. From what I'm told, she wasn't even a drinker. She pretty much kept to herself. She had no known enemies, according to her cousin. She spent most of her time at work, at church, or at home. So that's basically it when it comes to victimology. There's not a whole lot there. The only risk factor that I've been able to identify was her intimate relationship status. And that status certainly raises some red flags. So now that we have a clear picture of how Elnora lived, next I want to break down how Elnora died. I'm going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then I'm going to break down the actual crime scene. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Stamps.com. Mailing and shipping are a routine part of running your business. It's important. It's a part of what keeps your operation going. But if you're going to make constant trips to the post office, that's a routine that you need to change. There's a much more convenient way, and that's with Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Print postage for any letter, any package, and any class of mail. Then you just hand your package to your mail carrier and you're done. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again. And that way you can focus on what really matters, and that's growing your business. I just used Stamps.com just an hour before recording this ad. It's a part of my daily work routine, and I love it. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code TRUTH for this special offer. Stamps is offering a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. Today's episode is also sponsored in part by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. Squarespace is simple to use even if you don't understand coding. You can add and arrange your content and features with just the click of a mouse. And Squarespace makes adding a domain to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you receive a custom domain for free for a year. Squarespace offers a huge range of beautiful templates. They all have easy-to-use, customizable settings, and you can even create an online store, all without a single plugin. And if you ever have any questions or concerns, Squarespace offers 24-7 customer support, and every member of the customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user working in a Squarespace office. No matter how technical your problem or trivial-seeming your question, one of their team is always online to assist you. So if you've been thinking about creating a website, now's the time to act. Squarespace is offering Truth and Justice listeners 10% off of their first purchase. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code TRUTHANDJUSTICE to get that 10% off of your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. Alright, in order to break down this crime scene, the first thing that I want to do is to give you an idea of the layout of the trailer where Elnora Griffin's body was found. I'm going to describe it to you in as good of detail as possible, but if you prefer to look at an image, 
I have created and uploaded an image to the website under the case documents page of the layout of the crime scene. The drawing's not to scale, but it'll give you a better idea. So just go to truthandjusticepod.com, click the case documents, go down to the Edward H. case, click that, and you'll see not only the diagram that Detective Jason Waller drew at trial, but also the image that I've created on the computer and uploaded there. Elnora Griffin lived in a single wide trailer. For those of you that aren't familiar with these type of homes, the trailer is about 13 feet wide and about 60 feet long. It ran parallel to the road, and if you walked in the front door, you would enter into the living room. From the front door, if you turn to the right, immediately to the right of the door is the master bedroom. And off the end of the master bedroom is the master bathroom. And a little later on, we'll get into all these locations and what was found there. But to give you an idea for now, when you walk in the front door, you'll be in the living room. If you made an immediate right, you would be in the master bedroom. If you turn left, you would walk through the living room, and the next room would be the kitchen. And then after going through the kitchen, there's a hallway that runs along the rear of the trailer, and that's where the back door is located. Opposite the back door is the guest bathroom, and then if you continue down that hallway, there's another bedroom at the end of the trailer that wasn't actually being used as a bedroom. It was described as a storage room, there was a computer back there, there was sewing equipment back there. And also in that end of the trailer is the washroom, where the washer and dryer are located. So again, if you start at that end of the trailer, in the back bedroom that's used for storage, and you walk through the rest, you'd go down the hallway, the back door would be on your left then, the guest bathroom on your right, you'd then come to the kitchen. As you continue through the kitchen, you'd walk into the living room. On the other side of the living room is the master bedroom. And at the end of the master bedroom is the master bathroom. Now in a few minutes, I'll go room by room and describe the crime scene to you and what was found in each room. But where I want to start is the living room. The living room is where Elnora's body was found. And that's where I want to focus first, on her body. Elnora's body was found in the living room, lying in the prone position, so that's face down, just adjacent to the couch. Her head was closest to the kitchen, which was about five feet away. It's important to note that the carpet in that room was like a burnt orange or reddish color. And that's important because it's very difficult to identify from these photos any type of blood spatter pattern. Also, in the trial itself, it was never said whether the police used luminol or any other methods to identify a blood spatter pattern on the carpet. What you could see was a large amount of blood on the floor right under Elnora Griffin's head and on a pillow that her upper body and head was laying on top of. Now, for starters, let's talk about the pillow. I'm not sure where that pillow came from. It appears to be a bed pillow. It's pink or purplish in color, and it doesn't match the bed set from her bedroom. The pillow on her bed was actually green, so I don't know if this pillow was carried from the bedroom in her hands. I don't know if it was already on the floor. I don't know how it got there, but her head was laying on this pillow, and you'll see that in the crime scene photos on the website. As far as the body itself, Miss Griffin was covered with injuries all over her body. But let's first start with the fatal injury, the one that caused her death. Elnora's throat had been slit. And not just slit, but slit deeply, all the way back to her spine or the vertebrae in her neck. The cut on her throat starts on the right side of her neck and continues for about six inches all the way to just left of her trachea. And like I said, the cut was deep. Her entire windpipe was severed. The jugular vein on the right side of her neck was severed, and both of her carotid arteries were severed. The medical examiner that performed the autopsy testified at trial that that was the injury that caused her death. 
Now, as you can imagine, cutting someone's throat like that would cause a lot of blood to spill. And you'll see in the crime scene photos with her body redacted out that there's a large pool of blood on the floor next to her. And there's also a lot of blood that has run down her shoulders and back. We don't have photos of the front of her body, but there's definitely a lot of blood running down her shoulders and along her upper back. Aside from this injury, Elnora had been badly beaten. There are cuts on her chin. Her lip was beaten and bruised. Her nose was beaten and bruised. During autopsy, there was found to be blunt force trauma to the back of her head. There's another smaller cut on her neck. There are two cuts on her left arm, and one of these are significant. Of the two cuts, according to the medical examiner, one of the cuts was made perimortem or before she died. In the other cut, a larger one, was inflicted on her post-mortem or after death. Now, as the ME explained in trial, that doesn't necessarily mean that Miss Griffin was brain dead or even that her heart had completely stopped beating. It means that injury was inflicted after there was no pressure left in Miss Griffin's circulatory system. That's significant because with this type of injury to her throat, with the jugular and both carotid arteries being severed in one slice, her blood pressure would drop to almost zero almost immediately. Your circulatory system is a closed system that requires pressure to operate. And by opening up two major arteries like that at the same time, collapse is almost immediate, the blood pressure would drop to zero almost immediately, and death would come within seconds. So therefore, that cut to her left arm could have been inflicted on her within two to five seconds of her throat being slit. And that's important because when I say it's a cut, I don't mean it's a stab or overkill after she was on the ground and someone was stabbing her with a knife. It's more of an abrasion, like the knife grazed against her arm. It's just a chunk of skin that's missing right there on her left elbow. The reason that this is significant, along with the cut on her throat, is because those two injuries tend to indicate the handedness of the murderer. And there's more that will go into this. But when you have a cut to the right side of somebody's throat, that will typically indicate that if her throat was slit from behind her, that the killer was left-handed, or at least used their left hand to hold the knife. If they were holding the victim with their right arm, reached around from behind with their left, a cut this deep and this severe that starts on the right side of the neck as this cut did, would indicate that the killer was using their left hand. The post-mortem cut on her left elbow would further indicate that someone from behind her would have had the knife in their left hand. Most likely, as the victim was falling to the ground, the killer would have still had the knife in his or her hand as they possibly tried to catch the body or help lower the body to the ground and cause the cut on the elbow after all of the pressure had been let out of her circulatory system. Now, another option would be that the killer was standing in front of Miss Griffin when her throat was slit. But the injuries do not seem to support that, nor does the blood spatter. Elnora's body was facing towards the kitchen when her throat was slit. And we know this because of a blood spatter pattern that appears on the wall separating the kitchen from the living room, as well as blood spatter on the kitchen floor. Now these were the blood droplets that I had mentioned two weeks ago that I thought may have come from the killer leaving the house. But once I got home and got it onto my computer and was able to zoom in and get a better look at this blood spatter pattern, I noticed that all of the blood drops were directional. They appear to have come directly from the direction where Elnora's body was found. Now, this is the only blood spatter that's visible in the house. She was standing right next to a white couch, and there's not a single drop of blood that was found on that couch. 
Had she been facing that direction, blood droplets on the couch would have been easily identified. Now, the rest of the living room, like I said, the carpet was a color that would make it difficult to see blood drops with the naked eye, but we do have this blood spatter going into the kitchen. So that indicates that she was facing that direction when her throat was slit, and also that someone wasn't standing in front of her, because if they were, that blood spatter would have hit them and not made it into the kitchen. Another factor in determining the handedness of the killer would be if we considered that the victim was laying down or kneeling down when their throat was slit. In this case, again, based on the blood droplets that were found on the wall between the living room and the kitchen, and given the distance away from the body, it's quite obvious that Elnora was standing up when her throat was slit. Also, we have to consider the positioning of the body. She was laying prone with her head in the direction of the kitchen, and it appears that the path of the struggle, which we'll get into in a few moments, began back in that master bedroom. So the direction she would have been moving, or if she was trying to run away from somebody, would have been towards the kitchen. When we consider all of these things together, my assessment is that we are likely looking for a killer who is left-handed. Of course, this is not an exact science. There's always the possibility that the killer used their weak hand to slit Elnora's throat. But considering the depth and severity of the cut, and also from the research I've done about the tendencies of people to use their strong hand when they commit a crime like this, I think that the most likely scenario, in my opinion, is that we are looking for someone who is left-handed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Now breaking down the rest of Elnora's injuries, she had bruising on the upper right-hand portion of her back near her shoulder. She also had a bad scratch on her right hip and quite a bit of other scratches and bruises just throughout her body, all mostly on her back. Another significant injury was the petechia in her eyes. During the autopsy, the medical examiner noted, as well as on the stand at trial, that there was hemorrhaging in the conjunctiva of the eyes. The assessment of the medical examiner was that this is typically due to pressure on the neck or someone being choked, not strangled, but choked strangulation is a cause of death. And she said that Elnora Griffin did not die of strangulation, but it does appear that she was choked or attempted to be strangled. And the other contributing factor to this is the fact that there was fecal material discovered around the buttocks area of Miss Griffin, and there was also fecal material found on the floor in the master bedroom. The ME testified that oftentimes when someone is choked and there is pressure put on their neck, that they will lose control of the sphincters in their body and it will cause someone to defecate. So when we consider the petechia in the eyes, along with the fact that she defecated back in the bedroom, 
It appears that she was attempted to be strangled before she eventually had her throat slit. In regarding her throat being slit, there's one other thing that I didn't mention earlier that supports the fact that not only was she standing when her throat was slit, but also that she almost immediately fell forward. And that's the blood patterns on her body. Now, these aren't pictures that I can show to you, so I'll have to just describe them to you. But in the crime scene photos, you can see a large amount of blood poured over Miss Griffin's right shoulder. And you can also see trails where the drops of blood ran down her body. And there is a quick direction change in the flow of that blood. So since you can't see the pictures, I'll try to describe this as best as possible. Imagine if you put a drop of water on your shoulder towards your back. It would immediately start to run down your back. But if you then immediately laid down forward, the direction of the water droplets travel would change. Now this is obviously due to gravity. The droplet is going to travel down towards the floor. So the travel of that blood droplet would make almost an L-shaped pattern. It would start to go down. As you went down to the floor, it would turn and go towards the right side of your body to run around your ribs down to the ground. This is the pattern of the blood drops on Elnora Griffin. You can see that the blood around her shoulder started to go straight down, and then after about three or four inches, turned and went down towards the ground along her ribcage on the right side. That tells us that when the injury occurred, she was in a vertical position, but very shortly thereafter was laying prone. There was also another blood pattern on Elnora's body that I believe was transferred blood. And in fact, when looking at the photo, I don't think there's any question that the blood was transferred. On the right side of Elnora's back, about halfway down, there's a large, I guess I would call it smudge of blood. And I say this is transfer because it's not connected to the injury, meaning there's not a direct path of travel from the injury down to this place. And again, this is significant because it's on the right side of her back, would further indicate that the murderer not only was standing behind her, but also was using their left hand to make the cut. It appears as though the killer was using their right hand to hold Elnora when they slit the throat with the left. This, of course, would get a large amount of blood on their right hand almost immediately, and then as she was falling to the ground, hit their hand or their arm on the right side of her back and transferred that blood onto that location. I just don't see any other way that that blood could have gotten there. The last thing that I want to mention is something that was found on Elnora's buttocks. Now remember, her body was found completely nude. The only thing that she had on was a ring and a few other pieces of jewelry. Again, she was lying face down, and on her buttock was what appeared to be a chip of nail polish. Now this is a big mystery in this case. The chip was photographed, it was supposedly put into an evidence bag, and sent to the forensic lab for testing. However, when this evidence bag was received by the company that was doing the forensic testing, there was nothing in it. It was missing. At trial, this was explained away because of the fact that it was very small and maybe it had fallen out of the bag. But in any case, no testing was ever done on this piece of forensic evidence. No time of death was ever determined. While on the stand, the medical examiner testified that Hollywood has given people a false impression about how a medical examiner would determine time of death. David Dobbs made reference to the TV show Quincy. When you see on television, they always stick a probe in the liver, and they can tell you within a few minutes or a few hours of when the person was deceased. But apparently that's only a TV thing. So no time of death was ever determined for Elnora Griffin. A rape kit analysis was performed on Elnora's body. There were vaginal, anal, and oral swabs taken. 
the results came back negative. And from my understanding of the trial testimony, all that means is that there was no traces of semen found in any of those locations. It was officially ruled that Elnora Griffin was not sexually assaulted. A combing of Elnora's pubic hair did not reveal any foreign hairs in that area either. There were, however, a few hairs found on her body. At trial, it was revealed that those hairs were microscopically tested against Edward Eights, and they did not match his hairs, but it never said if they were tested against the victim or any other suspects, only that they didn't match Eights. Fingernail clippings were taken from Elnora's body, and it was noted that there was blood and fibers found under her fingernails. An initial screening showed that the blood type was the same as Miss Griffin's, and therefore no further testing was done. Since Edward Eights had a different blood type than Elnora, apparently it was just assumed that it was her blood under the nails. And no testimony was ever given about the analysis of the fiber that was also found under her nails in the blood. So a quick breakdown of her body. Elnora Griffin was badly beaten. She had bruising on her face, her lips, her nose, a cut on her chin, blunt force trauma to the back of the head, scratches and bruises all over her back, cuts on her left arm, and her throat was slit from right to left. It was about a six-inch cut that went the full depth of her neck all the way back to her spine. The evidence supports that she was not sexually assaulted, and by my analysis, she was likely killed from behind by a left-handed killer. And this fatal wound was inflicted after a brutal struggle. And I believe that that struggle began in the master bedroom. The master bedroom was an ugly scene. The mattress had been pushed away from the box spring, and you'll see that in the crime scene diagram and photos, but it's twisted at an angle. The struggle appeared to start either on the bed or between the bed and the door into the living room. You'll see in the crime scene photos that the comforter was pulled off the bed towards the door, but the lower half of the mattress was pushed away from the door, almost as though someone was standing on the comforter when the struggle bumped into the bed. However, I believe that the struggle began before that happened. And the reason for that is some of the evidence that was found in that room. Under the comforter, there was a house coat found, a terry cloth robe. And on top of the terry cloth robe was fecal material. There was another piece of fecal material on the carpet right next to the robe, along with a few other spots right in that same general vicinity. I believe this was the location where the struggle began and the killer attempted to strangle Miss Griffin. This would be consistent with the hemorrhaging in her eyes, as well as the fecal material in that location. Now, there are a few other things to point out about this area of the crime scene that can help to paint a picture for us. On the bedroom floor, just off the foot of the bed, was a pair of white panties. The panties appear to have been, as was testified at trial, that they had been rolled down. They were taken off away from the bed, or at least set over in that area. There was also a bra that was found underneath that comforter. The bra wasn't ripped or torn. It was unlatched and taken off. Now, there was some testimony by Lieutenant Jason Waller that that bra was actually found on the chair in the bedroom. However, the crime scene photos do not seem to support that. If it was originally on the chair, then someone moved it before they took the photos. It was actually found on the floor. And it was on the floor right next to the house coat. So what does this tell us about the crime scene? It tells us that apparently... What Miss Griffin was wearing when she was murdered, or when this struggle began, was nothing more than panties, a bra, and a robe. It also doesn't appear that at least the bra, if not the panties, 
were forcefully removed from her. Now, this is an assumption just based on the analysis, but based on the location and condition of that clothing, it appears that they were voluntarily taken off. Another odd thing about that area of the crime scene was something that may turn out to be a bit of a red herring. There was a semen stain found on the comforter in that room. The stain was collected and sent to the lab for testing, and it did turn out to be a semen stain. Edward Eights was excluded as a donor. None of the sample included the same blood type as Elnora Griffin. It did, however, come back as the same blood type as Elnora's ex-boyfriend, Leonard Mosley. Now, this would seem significant. However, remember, the medical examiner's opinion was that Elnora was not sexually assaulted. There was no semen found in the rape kit, and there were not even any foreign hairs found in her pubic region. Also, there's no way to date a semen stain like that. That stain could have been there for five hours, five weeks, five months, or five years. I personally find it kind of odd because it's a visible stain, and Miss Griffin seems to have kept that trailer very neat and organized. It was noted in the trial testimony that the kitchen was immaculate. It would seem odd that she wouldn't wash a comforter with a big stain like that on it. But in any case, it was found and that test was performed. But there's something else very significant about that room. There was something found in there that should not have been there. On Elnora's nightstand was a telephone and an answering machine. Trial testimony indicates that that phone was working. However, on the floor, right next to that nightstand, was another phone. This was a wall-type phone, and it appears that it is the phone that belonged in the kitchen. As a matter of fact, I'm almost sure it came from the kitchen, because in the kitchen was the wall phone jack with no phone on it, but the male end of the wire that goes into it still there, and that wire was found broken on the phone in the bedroom. So it appears that someone had not just taken, but ripped that phone off of the wall in the kitchen and carried it into that bedroom and then set it on the floor. Now I'll get into all of this a little bit later, but it's certainly an indication of premeditation. Oftentimes a killer in a situation like this will cut off communication so that when the struggle starts, the victim cannot call 911. But this gets a little more complicated as we go along. So a breakdown of that room, the master bedroom, would indicate that that is the room where the struggle began. We have indications that Elnora Griffin was wearing just a bra, panties, and a robe. Indications that she voluntarily took those off. However, as far as we know, there was no sex had. Someone had brought the phone from the kitchen into that room. That phone appears to have been forcefully removed from the wall or yanked off the wall because the wire was broken and the jack was still in the outlet in the kitchen. From there, the struggle continued into the living room. Now, just outside of the door from the bedroom is the front door to the trailer. On that front door, as I mentioned last week, there was a towel nailed up over the window so no one could see in. But that towel wasn't there before this crime occurred. There was a pink curtain on that window prior to the attack. And on that living room floor, just in front of that door, was the curtain rod where that curtain used to hang. It was broken and laying on the floor. The curtain, however, was found back in the washroom. And just opposite that front door, maybe three or four feet away, was a small coffee table with a lamp on it. Except for the lamp wasn't on it. It was laying on the floor next to the table. Based on these two things, my assessment of what took place is when the struggle left the bedroom, I believe that Elnora tried to get out of that front door. She was probably grabbed and not allowed to leave the door, got her hands on the curtain, and yanked the curtain off of the window. 
While she was being yanked away from the curtain, the struggle must have hit the table and knocked the lamp off. From there, we proceed about 10 or 12 feet to where the body was found. So the path of the struggle, which is indicated on the crime scene diagram that I put up on the website, seems to have started in the bedroom where Elnora voluntarily took off her robe, panties, and bra. In that room, someone had brought the phone from the kitchen and set it on the floor. There was an attempt to strangle Miss Griffin. She escaped the clutches of whoever had her in that bedroom, attempted to get out the front door, was not allowed to do so, ripped the curtain off the door. The struggle then banged into the coffee table, knocked the lamp off. She made it about another 10 feet before she was grabbed behind, I believe by a left-handed killer who then slit her throat, and she died right there. All of the other injuries that were inflicted on Miss Griffin occurred somewhere during that path. All the bruising to her face and the back of her head, her shoulder, her back, her leg. This was quite a struggle. And for a woman that was only four foot, four and a half inches tall and 104 pounds, Elnora Griffin was fighting for her life. But eventually she was overcome. Based on these facts, I believe that the killer was likely not someone that was a whole lot bigger than her, certainly not a six foot six person that was in great physical condition. Now again, I'll point out these are assumptions, but this is my analysis of the crime scene based on just the facts that were found there. Elnora fought this person off, and she was successful in doing so. She even escaped the grasps of the killer when they were attempting to strangle her. She was able to get away. She was able to make it to that front door. There was obviously a significant struggle at that front door where the curtain was ripped off and the lamp was knocked off of the nightstand. And she was able to escape again and make it another 10 to 12 feet before the killer eventually resorted to slitting her throat. So based on these elements, I believe we were looking for a left-handed killer, not very large in stature, or with some kind of a physical disability, or possibly even another woman. Next, we move into the kitchen. Remember, the kitchen is just off of the living room. Elnora's kitchen had an L-shaped type setup, meaning along one wall was the stove, counters, the kitchen sink. It made a turn to another counter and then a refrigerator. Also in that kitchen was a dining room table. Now, there are a few things significant about this kitchen. For starters, one thing that some of you listeners have been helping me with is that there's what appears to be a footprint in the middle of the kitchen floor. Now, it was stated at trial that Detective Jason Waller got down on his hands and knees and smelled the footprint and believed it to be fecal material. But I don't believe there was ever any testimony if a sample was taken and sent to a lab to prove whether or not it was fecal material. Another very interesting point, and you can see this by the trial testimony and the photos on the crime scene, is that the only place where there was fecal material found in the house was in that master bedroom. And it does not appear that any of these fecal stains had been stepped in. None of them are smudged. There's no footprints in them. The fecal matter is just laying on the floor. And when you go to the website and look at the crime scene photo of this print, if this was a footprint from someone stepping in poop and then stepping on that floor, they would have had to have stepped right in the middle of one of those piles of fecal material. This is not a small stain. 
Also, there is only one of these footprints in the middle of the kitchen, which would suggest that the killer had so much fecal material on their shoe that they made this footprint in the middle of the kitchen, continued to walk through the kitchen, and never made another print. I don't know exactly what all of this means, but at the risk of a bad pun, something stinks here. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Now, other items of import in that kitchen. Something that is quite significant is that there was a meal prepared on the stove. Testimony at trial indicates that Elnora ate dinner when she got off work every evening at a normal time, 5, 6 o'clock. Yet, according to her friend Kubia Jackson, who says she made a phone call between 9.45 and 10.30 p.m. the night she was murdered, she was still alive at that time. And somewhere in that evening, she had prepared a meal. But this meal wasn't for her. In the sink, which as I noted before, was said that it was immaculate at trial, there was one plate, one knife, and one fork, indicating that Elnora had already eaten dinner. On the stove, there were three pans, and the contents of the third pan were never discussed at trial. But there was a frying pan that had one single chicken breast in it, with some type of gravy on it. And there was a pot next to it that had rice in it. The stove had been turned off, and there's crime scene photos to indicate that. So it appears that for some reason... Late in the evening on the 22nd of July in 1993, Elnora was cooking a meal, and it appears to be a meal for one. But that meal was never eaten, which leads us over to the dining room table. At the dining room table, there were two chairs pulled out as though someone had been sitting in them. Detective Waller testified that he thought it appeared that Miss Griffin had been sitting there paying bills. But I disagree. When you look at the crime scene photos, you'll see that there is a large stack of paperwork on the table off to one end. There's also a calculator and a calendar. But what you don't see there is a pen. And what you do find is what looks like some kind of a knitted tablecloth in the seat next to the calculator and all of the paperwork. I don't believe that she was sitting there paying bills. I believe that this is a location where she did pay bills, but I don't think that's what she was doing at that moment. If I was sitting at that table paying bills, I wouldn't be writing checks and filling out paperwork on top of that thick cloth placemat. I would move it away so I had a hard surface to write on. Now there is a calendar right there, right where she was sitting. So I think it's possible that she had maybe at some point been reading off of that calendar. But there's something also that's significant about that dining room table. There's some kind of a table covering like a, like a doily that runs down the middle of the table. 
And when you look at the photo, you'll notice that where the second chair is, on the end of the oval-shaped table, the doily is bunched up. I did some very non-scientific experiments on this in my own dining room. I sat my chair at the same angle of the table. We have a similar type doily thing that goes on our table that my wife put there. And I sat there talking to my wife, and I found myself putting my arm on the table. And you'll see this chair is kind of at an angle. So as I'm sitting there talking, I put my right elbow and arm up on the table, and it bunched up that doily thing in the middle of the table, just like it looked in the crime scene photo. So it looks to me that Elnora was sitting there speaking to someone at her dining room table. The calendar is between those two seats, so maybe they were discussing something that had to do with that calendar, or maybe that just happened to be laying there at the time. But it's obvious that someone was sitting at that table with her the night that she was murdered. And it also appears that that someone may have been who she was cooking dinner for. The only other item of import in the kitchen was that phone jack that I mentioned earlier. Like I said, the phone was missing, and inside the jack was the male end of the plug from the actual phone that had been broken off of the wire. As we move past the kitchen into the hallway towards the rear of the trailer, we come to the back door. It should be noted that the back door was found locked, and I don't think that I mentioned this earlier, but the front door was also locked. The difference between the two is that the front door did not have a deadbolt. It's a type of lock where you can just twist the lock on and then pull the door closed behind you, whereas the back door had a knob lock as well as a deadbolt. So if the killer had exited out of the back door, they would have had to have used the key from the outside to lock the deadbolt. But moving on, as you move down the hall, you next come to the guest bathroom. Now there was something of significance in that guest bathroom. And that is the fact that the toilet seat was found up. I'm sure I don't need to explain this to any of you, but that would most definitely indicate that there was a male in the house who had used the bathroom. And I'll also note this guy was not very courteous. I get in trouble if I leave the seat up at my house. The window was cracked open. There was an ashtray with cigarette butts in it and a pack of cigarettes found. There was saliva taken for forensic testing off of those cigarette butts. And it came back to be a blood type match to Elnora Griffin. But again, that's just a blood type match. Now, I'm told that she didn't smoke regularly, but that she would occasionally go into that back bathroom and smoke a cigarette and blow the smoke out of that window. So it would seem likely that those cigarettes did belong to her. I'll also note that while Edward Ates was being interrogated, a call was made to the detective's office to figure out what brand of cigarettes he smoked. And it was not the same brand as what was found in the bathroom. And again, I'll point out that the blood type on the saliva ended up to not match Edward. It was a match to the victim, Elnora. To move further down the hall and get to the washroom, storage room area, we find something interesting. On top of the washing machine was a hammer. It was out of place. It was actually sitting on top of a comic strip from the newspaper, right on top of the washer. And in a basket right next to it was the pink curtain that came from the front door. Now that pink curtain was later sent for forensic testing, and it was found that there were a couple of droplets of blood found on that curtain but there's no testimony at trial as to whether they attested it for blood type or any kind of DNA analysis. It's also important to note that that towel that was hung over that door was tacked on with nails. The theory being that that hammer from that washing machine is what was used to nail up that towel. And if we go all the way back to the other end of the house, in the master bathroom off of Elnora's master bedroom, there's a towel rack that has been ripped off the wall. And you'll see that in the crime scene photos on the website. 
The screws are pulled out of the wall, and there's no towel on the rack. We also find in that bedroom one of the tiebacks from that curtain from the front door. So in trying to put all of this together, it appears that after the murder occurred, the killer moved throughout the house for quite a period of time. The tieback from the curtain could possibly have been thrown into the room during the struggle. The front door and the door to the master bedroom are right next to each other, right adjacent to each other. So that's how that could possibly have gotten there. But we have the hammer all the way back on the washing machine. And next to the hammer in the basket is the curtain that came off of the front door. Logically, we can make the assumption that the towel that was hung up on that front door came from the master bathroom. It looks like it was ripped off of that towel rod in a hurry and actually ripped the towel rod off of the wall. So it would appear that the killer left the body, grabbed the curtain, took it back to the washroom, found the hammer probably somewhere in the storage room. It's never indicated in any of the testimony where the hammer actually belonged. Went all the way to the other end of the house, into the master bathroom, and got a towel, hung the towel up over the door, and nailed it onto the door covering the window. And then took the hammer all the way back to the laundry room and set it back down on the washing machine. Now these things didn't necessarily happen in that order, but I'm assuming the most likely place where the hammer would have been found before the towel was nailed up would have been in that back storage room, and then later it was placed on the washing machine. There's no indications in any of the reports that fingerprints were lifted off of that hammer. When you read the testimony of the FBI agent who did the fingerprint testing, he just says that there were six or seven prints taken from the house and that he tested all of them. He says that two of the prints matched the victim, and the remaining four were unidentified. It also doesn't clearly say whether those prints were tested against anybody besides the victim and Edward Ates and Leonard Mosley. There was one fingerprint and a partial palm print lifted off of the coffee table where Elnora's legs were entangled underneath where her body was found that did not belong to Elnora Griffin, they did not belong to Edward Ates, and I believe they did not belong to Leonard Mosley either. Now a couple of things that I want to address from last week's episode. First of all, the towel that we just discussed. After reading the trial testimony of Jason Waller, this is another item that I find extremely suspicious. He testified at trial, as well as Detective Dale Huckel, that there was a large handprint impressed upon that towel, and that Detective Huckel held his hand up to that towel, and the print was bigger than his. Now this sounds like there's a very large person who held that towel up there. I mentioned that there's no crime scene photos of that towel or of them holding their hand up, but there's a few things that are even more disturbing than that. Detective Waller wrote about a 15-page report of his crime scene analysis, detailing everything he found in that house. But there's something missing. There's nothing in his report, no documentation whatsoever, that he had found a handprint on that towel. It's never even mentioned in his report. There's no photos of them holding their hands up against the handprint. Nothing at all. The first time anyone heard about this handprint was at trial. And this is extremely suspicious. Something that they used at trial, a point that they tried to drive home that helped to incriminate Edward Eights, was never documented in a police report, was never documented with a photograph. It's as though it was not invented until they got to trial. Also, the processing of Elnora Griffin's car. I told you last week that Detective Waller testified that the seat in the car was pushed all the way back and the radio was tuned to a rap music station. Again, that sounds very incriminating. And again, 
There is nothing in his written report about any of these items in that car. He didn't take any photographs of the inside of the car. He didn't write down the position of the seat. He didn't write down what station it was on. Nothing. It's like all of that was an afterthought. And in fact, during his testimony, he stated that he didn't document it because it didn't seem significant to him until after they had a suspect. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you. My translation of that is after we had a suspect and we had no physical evidence tying him to the crime, we made some up. Another thing that should be noted about the crime scene is that there are two lead investigators in this case. Detective Waller was actually on vacation when this occurred, and as of Monday, he left and was gone for, I believe, three weeks. Remember, the crime occurred on the Thursday night before that. He came in from vacation to only do the crime scene analysis. The lead investigator on the case was Dale Huckel. He's the one that continued on with the investigation after Waller left town. In reading the trial testimony, it appears that there was a bit of a rift between Huckel and Waller. They don't explicitly say so, but in Huckel's testimony, which you won't see in this episode, but you'll see in a future episode, he didn't seem very happy about the fact that Detective Waller decided to release the crime scene back to the family at 7 a.m. the morning after the body was found. So we're talking 10 hours after the time when he arrived on the scene. He testified that he got there about 9 p.m. on Friday night. 10 hours later... He had already released the scene back to the family, and that morning the family had arrived and was starting to take possessions out of the crime scene. At that point, that towel was still hanging on that window, and the car was still sitting in the driveway, so any chance of obtaining any further evidence was gone at that point. Any evidence collected would have been considered contaminated. Now regarding Miss Griffin's possessions, like I mentioned before, she had some jewelry on her body. One of the things was a ring of some value. And it was testified that the house was full of, quote, valuables. There were stereos and radios, a checkbook, television. There were lots of things in the house worth money. And as far as they know, everything was accounted for. The only thing that was missing was Elnora's purse. And there was some question as to whether it was actually missing or if they just didn't find it. But her purse was missing, including her wallet, possibly a checkbook, credit cards, maybe some cash, no one knows if she had cash or not, and her keys. None of these things were ever recovered. But based on the fact that everything else in the house was left where it was, the determination made by Detective Waller, the crime scene investigator, was that robbery was not the motive in this case. And on that point, I would agree with him. Personally, I do not believe that she had any cash in her wallet, and that's based on some information that I'll give to you in a future episode. And something else that is frustrating and maybe suspicious is that it appears from the trial testimony, and I say appears because it's not exactly clear, that the investigating officers never checked to see if anyone had used Elnora's credit card or written a check in her name or anything of that nature after the crime. They were asked while on the stand if they had any information that someone had used the credit cards or the checks, and Waller just keeps saying that he doesn't know or not that he knows of. And in Huckel's testimony later, it was a very similar response. The way it reads to me, it sounds like they never checked. So now let's go back into the crime scene and see if we can break this down with all of this information encompassed. I'm going to give you what I would consider to be somewhat of a criminal profile of who we're looking for. 
Now, I'm not an expert in this. I've done a lot of studying on it, and I have done a lot of work with Jim Clemente, who I'm also going to have look at this crime scene before he listens to this episode and possibly come on and give his analysis. I've talked to Jim about it a little bit. He's really swamped right now, and he doesn't have time to get to it at the moment. But I'm going to break down what I think happened. And when Jim has time, we'll see if he agrees. Based on all of the evidence found at that crime scene, I believe that we're looking for someone who has an intimate relationship with Elnora Griffin. I base this on a number of things. Number one, her attire. Elnora was wearing a bra and panties and a housecoat. So whoever was there with her was someone that she was comfortable enough to be sitting with wearing those clothes, or lack thereof for that matter. There was no forced entry visible into the house. That would indicate that it's someone that she knew that she led into the house. There are two chairs pulled out of her dining room table that would indicate that she was sitting there speaking with someone at that dining room table. I think we're looking for a man based on the fact that the toilet seat was up and also the fact that Elnora was found nude and it appears that her clothes had been voluntarily removed in her bedroom. I think that it's likely whoever did this is someone that Elnora was cooking a meal for. The evidence indicates, along with past history, that she had already eaten her dinner. Like I said, I've been told that she normally ate dinner at a normal time, 5, 6 o'clock after she got off of work. And also in her very clean kitchen, there was already a plate, a knife, and a fork. However, there was a fresh meal cooked on the stove, as though she had been preparing another meal for someone else. I believe that we're looking for someone who is smaller in stature or possibly has some kind of a physical disability. There has to be some reason why whoever attacked Elnora Griffin was not able to overcome a four foot four, hundred and four pound woman. That she fought off an attempt at strangulation. She fought off being beaten in the face, in the back of the head, and in the back and arms and legs. She was able to escape, get to the front door, where again there was a struggle. She was able to get away from that struggle and move at least another ten feet before finally her throat was slit. I believe that the individual that we're looking for not only is small in stature or has some sort of physical disability, but I believe that they are also left-handed. With further analysis of the crime scene, there's another theory that I'm wrestling around with. I can't seem to put a practical scenario together in my mind of how this went down. Someone she knows, someone she's intimate with, someone she likely was cooking a meal for, shows up at her house. That individual is male. He spent some amount of time there because he was there long enough at least to use the bathroom and leave the seat up and sit down with her at the dining room table. At some point, they move into the bedroom. Elnora is removing her clothes. And I cannot figure out what the motive would be at that moment to then change your mind and try to murder her and eventually succeed in doing so. I just can't make sense of it, and maybe some of you can. But then we have the fact that the phone was ripped out of the wall in the kitchen. This seems very odd to me. It wouldn't have been ripped out of the wall after the murder. I mean, what's the point? She's already dead. She's not going to call 911 at that point. So I would think it would have had to have been removed prior to the murder. Like I said earlier, indicating premeditation. But if they were in the kitchen, sitting at the dining room table, I can't see someone, this male individual, who she has an intimate relationship with, ripping the phone off the wall, and then them meandering back to the bedroom and her removing her clothes for them, unless she was held at gun or knife point or something along that lines, which certainly makes sense, but then again you would think the motive for that would be a sexual assault, which it appears did not occur. 
Also, if that was the case, if the killer pulled the phone off the wall so that she couldn't call 911 and then forced her to go back in the bedroom and take her clothes off, why would they not unplug the phone that's right next to the bed? That also doesn't make sense. And then you have this strange pattern of the towel that is hung up on the front door. The hammer is placed on the far west end of the trailer on the washing machine. The curtain is also placed in a basket there. And we know that was the curtain from the front door. Johnny Pryor testified that she helped her hang that curtain. And there was also blood found on that curtain. So the hammer, nails, and curtain all ended up on the west side. And there was a basket full of clothes right there. I mean, the person could have grabbed any of those items to hang up over that door. Yet for some reason, what was actually used to hang up over that window was a towel taken out of the master bedroom on the far east side of the trailer, the exact opposite end. When I'm thinking about this practically and breaking this down, why would someone take the curtain all the way to one end of the trailer, go into the storage room and find a hammer and nails, walk right past a basket full of clothes, all the way to the other end of the trailer. And again, now this person has walked past the kitchen where there's towels hanging, a lot of different options. There was actually even a blanket found in that guest bathroom. All of these things could have been used. And that blanket in that guest bathroom is suspect as well. I don't know how that got there. Unless one person went to that end of the trailer, took the bloody curtain there, found the hammer and nails, and grabbed the blanket, and started walking back towards the front door, when a second person from the other end of the trailer yelled that they had something better. They had a towel. So the person on the west end drops the blanket right there in the bathroom, brings just the hammer and nails back to the front door, where they meet a second individual who has the towel and nail the towel up over the window. In the telephone that was found in the master bedroom also supports the theory that there was someone else in that house. Now this is just a theory. But walk through this scenario. Someone who Elnora is intimate with comes to the house. She's wearing a robe. It's late at night. She had cooked this person a meal. He goes to the bathroom. They sit down. They chat at the table. They decide to go back to the bedroom. While they're back in the bedroom, a third person enters the house from the back door. That person walks through the kitchen, grabs the phone off the wall so that no one can call 911, goes through the living room into the master bedroom, and interrupts the sexual encounter that was just starting between Elnora and this other person. They drop the phone onto the ground, and the struggle starts there. That could be why the phone in the bedroom wasn't disconnected, because there was no time to do so. Because in that situation, if a third person entered that bedroom, panic would start immediately, and the struggle would start immediately. In this scenario, this could also help explain why the struggle went on for as long as it did. What if the original person that came into the trailer, the person that Elnora was having an intimate encounter with, was trying to help fight off the killer? I mean, think about it. How would a 104-pound, 4-foot-4 woman get out of the grasps of someone who had so much pressure on her neck that the blood vessels in her eyes were rupturing? She would have been seconds away from going unconscious. Most grown adults would have been able to hold that grip on her and finish the job, unless there was someone else fighting them off. Again, if that second person was fighting them off, Elnora escaped, tried to run out the front door, the killer got a hold of her again, the struggle ensued there, again that other person would have been defending her, she escapes again, finally catches up to her about 10 feet later, 
and slits her throat. This scenario makes the most sense to me, except for one thing. If that was the case, why would the man that was there originally, the man that was having an intimate relationship with Elnora, the man that helped fight off the killer unsuccessfully, why would that person help the killer cover it up? You would think that that's the last thing someone would want to do. You'd think they would continue to fight the person, or they'd try to get away and call the police. But that didn't happen. No one called the police. I believe there were two people that helped put that towel up on the window. I can only come up with two explanations for why that man, the first man that was there, would not call the police and would not continue to fight the person that just murdered the woman that he was having an intimate relationship with. Either the person that actually committed the murder was someone that he cared about, someone he had a relationship with, someone he wanted to protect, which would fit the victimology. Remember, the only risk factor that I was able to identify with Elnora Griffin was the fact that she was sleeping with a man who had a live-in girlfriend. So that's a possibility. They were interrupted by the girlfriend. The girlfriend actually committed the murder, or at least interrupted the encounter and started the whole struggle. Or the second reason I could think of is that, again, the man that was there originally knew the person who was committing the murder, knew them well enough to know that they weren't going to attack them, and didn't call the police to protect themselves. Maybe this person was married, or had a girlfriend, or someone that they didn't want to know that they had been in Elnora Griffin's trailer that night. And selfishly, they didn't call 911 in order to keep from getting in trouble with their partner. And I suppose a third option would be that the first person that was there, the person with the intimate relationship with Elnora Griffin, was scared, and when he saw Elnora get her throat slit, he bolted out the front door and escaped. But again, the only reason that that person wouldn't have called 911 and reported it, in my opinion, would have been if there was a reason he didn't want someone to know that he was in that trailer that night. So in my opinion, if I was leading this investigation, and I was investigating that crime scene on July 23rd, 1993, I would be on the lookout for someone who had an intimate relationship with Elnora Griffin, someone that she would have been cooking a meal for late at night, someone that she would have been comfortable enough with to be sitting there talking to them wearing nothing but a robe, bra, and panties. Someone that's in another relationship. That's where I would start my investigation. And then I would be questioning the person that was in the relationship with the individual identified. But all in all, after three weeks of investigating this crime scene, I believe very strongly that there were three people in that trailer that night. Next week on Truth and Justice, I'm going to be breaking down the timelines. We'll discuss Elnora Griffin's known timelines. We're going to discuss Edward Eight's timelines, along with any other suspects. We're going to try to get a better idea of who was where and when. But before I leave you today, there's one other thing that I want to point out to you. Edward Eight's interviews with the police were recorded. If you go to the website and look for the episode 214 documents, You'll see the transcript of Edward Eight's two recorded interviews. But when I was in the courthouse, I found that in the exhibit file, there were actually three tapes, but only two were played at trial. And there was some discussion at trial and some confusion about these. One of them is marked July 23, 1993, Edward Eight's first interview. There's another one that's marked July 23, 1993, Edward Eight's first interview, Continued. 
And then there was a third one marked July 27th, 1993, Edward Eight's second interview. So there are two tapes that indicate that they were taken from Edward Eight's first interview on the night the body was found. It was stated at trial that they both contained the same recording. I got copies of the tapes while I was there, and while I was converting them to a digital format, I found out that that was not true. The two tapes that say they came from the 23rd, the one that says first interview, and the one that says first interview continued, are not the same recordings. The one that was played for the jury at trial and the one that has transcripts generated for it was the one that was marked continued, and again it was stated that it's the same thing that was on the other tape. Now this is really difficult to hear because of the background noise, but I want you to listen to this and listen closely. This is the first thing that was said on that tape that was not played at trial and was not reduced to transcripts. The defense team didn't even know this existed, and they were told that it's the same thing that was on the other tape. This is Detective Dale Huckel asking Edward Eights the very first question he asked on this tape. What you just heard was Dale Huckel asking Edward Eights if he's right-handed or left-handed. And Edward Eights responds, I'm right-handed. And the prosecution made sure that the jury never heard this. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Don't forget that you can purchase the soundtrack for Truth and Justice. It's called Truth and Justice the Music on iTunes. You can preview the album at truthandjusticemusic.com. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing this episode. Thank you to today's sponsors, Squarespace and Stamps.com. Thank you to all of you for continuing to stay engaged. And please take the time to go onto the website. Remember, the website is truthandjusticepod.com. Click the case documents page, scroll down to the Edward Eights case. That'll take you to its own page where every episode will have all the photos and relative documents to that episode. And there's going to be a lot of photos up for this episode, along with several documents. Keep in contact or on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. Stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.